episode 44 polarized versus pyramidal welcome to the oxidative potential podcast where we discuss all things sports science and performance i'm your host matthew derosh and with me is my fellow co-host phil batterson enjoy Good day, folks. On today's episode, Phil and I discuss all things pyramidal versus polarized training. So we wanted to dig into the training distribution literature, um, what it has to say on this topic, what are the limitations of the research, what are some things that they can't properly discern from just from the investigations that they've done, the way they currently have them set up. Um, also, what are the factors to take into consideration when you're thinking about organizing your training distribution? Because um, there's some really, I think, insightful tidbits in there that uh, will leave you with some some questions and maybe some thoughts around how you should maybe structure your training um, relative to the modality that you're engaging with. Um, yeah, so I thought this was a, was a nice podcast. I know it's kind of a popular topic lately, and we thought we'd just kind of talk broadly over the topic and also dig into the research and then come out on the other side with some useful takeaways of how to kind of look at things. Um, so yeah, hope you guys enjoy this episode. And if you want to catch a hold of Phil or I, you can do so on Instagram. Phil's at critical O2. I'm at resilience HBC. You can hit us up there for any coaching consultation inquiries questions anything related to the podcast or sports performance in general um yeah so that'd be great anyways uh we'll catch you later and peace all right welcome back everybody so today matt and i are going to talk about polarized versus threshold training intensity distributions we thought that this was important because there's a lot of information out there like how to train what the volume intensity different things like that should be and um while it's still a new subject and a little bit challenging to actually implement into the research polarized versus threshold training is an important consideration when you are training and the types of training that you're doing so i guess we'll, we'll just start we'll just jump right into it and we'll start with like, what is polarized training what is threshold training there was a I, like i don't know what the actual historical background is for people noticing this idea that 80% of elite level athletes training happened in like very low zone one zone two, mm -hmm. like intensities, and then 80 and then 20% on the other side of things happened above zone two, which is like that VT, VT2, LT2 sort of threshold. So you have on one side, a lot of very, very low recovery training, and then very, very high intensity uh, kind of intervals or threshold training or sprint training, other things like that. And I think what the researchers were or what people were noticing is that the people who followed this trend of polarized training were a little bit more successful than those who followed potentially threshold training. So threshold training, on the other hand, is kind of still a lot of low intensity zone two, zone one work, but then instead of a lot of zone three work. So when I say zone one, two, and three, it's your, your easy or your moderate, heavy and severe. So with the threshold training, it's a lot of zone one and zone two. And then it's a lot of that middle ground, like below VT2, but pretty close, you know, what we would call threshold training, and then very little high intensity training. So Matt, you want to add to that? 
in terms of yeah this has been around in some form or another kind of whether that's been in the old soviet school of, of weightlifting distribution and the same with a lot of that stuff came out to back in the day they're endurance athletes as well it's like hey we understand we have to to build these base aerobic adaptations that's the, the foundation of our training there's been several different approaches to like overall endurance structure for a long time there's people that go out and would train literally like there's one runner I specifically remember is doing like 50 repeat 400s almost every day. Like yeah. Stuff insane, crazy. like in crazy, crazy stuff, folks. Yeah. And yeah, so I mean, there's been several approaches where people never go into high intensity at all. They never touch high intensity. 100% of their workload was low level endurance exercise. So what we're going to do today is understand what is the literature behind it? What are the limitations of the research? How do you even research as well? Because <laughs> when I pull out a study and say, hey, elite athletes are training like this, therefore, this is the best training. Is that sufficient? Okay. And then whenever they do research, let's intervene with pyramidal or polarized training for an intervention. The, the myriad of factors that need to be taken into consideration and, and isolated variables that need to be considered. Yeah. So we're just going to get into what the research says today and what are what are some of those things you actually see in practice? Yeah, what are yeah. some of the more practical takeaways that we're looking at here? What, what works on average better than the other, depending mm -hmm. on sport, modality, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that's like an interesting kind of uh, anecdote is there was a group like back at uh, like, like the early 1900s, I believe, that mm -hmm. did a ton of like walking like it was like a yeah. running like elite level running group and i can't remember who it was yeah. it was somewhere over in europe but yeah. like they just did like tons and tons and tons of walking and then mm -hmm. they would come back and do their like run sprint training or like other mm -hmm. super so talk about like polarized training to the max is yeah. like they're doing a ton of walking and then they're mm -hmm. doing coming back and doing their interval training and just just to note so threshold training and pyramidal training are one and the same yeah, um, synonymous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just depends on where you're looking in the literature and all of that. So, so yeah, we can kind of just just jump into it. So there's a, a cool systematic review and meta-analysis by Michael Rosenblatt, um, published in 2019, I believe. Yeah, 2019 in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to see, okay, so is there actually like what's the what's the pool data actually tell us for these randomized polarized versus pyramidal threshold or pyramidal or threshold training. So <laughs> in 2019, there were only four studies that actually fit their requirements. So again, highlighting this challenge of anytime in research, when you're doing some sort of training intervention, especially when it's in moderately trained to highly trained athletes, it's really, really hard to get, especially a highly trained athlete to agree to change their entire training program just for your research. Yeah. So I think that's one of the biggest, that's one of the biggest challenges in doing this sort of research is how do we actually get somebody to agree to do say like polarized versus threshold training. So they did a really good job of quantifying the, like the time in zone one, zone two, and zone three. And interestingly, there was actually one study, I think that like the most, one of the, like the, the most interesting to me was this study by Stugel or Stogel, mm -hmm. where their threshold group was 46% 
in zone one and then 54% in zone two. So, so that in my mind's eye is actually fairly representative of a lot of like a lot of amateur endurance athletes who, you know, who are just going out and running every day. Yeah. It's like, like you might've heard, heard the term, like the gray zone or junk miles or like other things like that, that 54% would represent or is representative to me of, of a lot of people who go out and just like, oh, well, if I just run as fast as I can every single day, that's going to be the best benefit for me. Yeah, black hole train. <laughs> they call it black hole training. Yeah. There's so many yeah, different terms yeah. <laughs> for it, but it's, yeah, it's like, yeah. maybe not the, maybe not the best. It's like a um, vortex you get sucked into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So then what they did in this meta-analysis is they just pulled all the data that had like time trial, time trial performance outputs and what they found forest plots again, but what they found from the forest plots was that, uh, the training modality that was most favored for better and or better time trial performance was polarized training. So somehow this polarized training is leading to better, better time trial performance outcome. And I don't know exactly what the time trial performance was. It could have been time to exhaustion, or it could have been a true, like say 40 K 20 K, whatever it is on a cycle ergometer or a treadmill. But that was their, that was their main takeaway is that from a performance perspective, it appears that uh, polarized training, even though it's only in a like this, they only use three, three groups or not three groups, three studies, four studies. Yeah. 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 But they actually got rid of one. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, So it's like, so, so it's like three studies. Like I I would say that it's like, okay, you know, meta-analyses are strong because they pull all the data together, but still it's only three studies. (laughs) Yeah. Calling this a meta-analysis starts to make me wonder like, what is the what is the definition that we're we're using now for some of these things? Right. It's like the pool data of three studies and yeah. probably four participants in most of those. Yeah. It's like, oh, so you've actually accumulated enough for one study and you're yeah. calling a meta-analysis. No, yeah, no, yeah. No, 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 man. They had they had there were 10, there were 10 people, and there were 16, and then there were six. Yeah. So they had yes. a total, I think, of like 32 people or something like that. Which is really what you should be looking at for a significant, significant data is like 30 subjects is like what you're looking at for one group. Yeah. (laughs) Significant. Anyway, that's funny. Yeah. Again. So, so take this, take this stuff with a grain of salt. Yeah. It's, it's, but from, from the, you know, if we're, if we're just kind of like, like one of the things we talk about in my, in my PhD lab is it's like, what if the data is true? Right. Yeah, it's like right. you can you can poke so many holes in all the research that's out there because you can't you can't design a perfect study no. like it, it's you. Well, you could, but then you would have to spend millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, how I don't even know how many hours worth of like labor and time for yeah. people. So it's really easy to sit there and destroy every single study that comes about. But what if yeah. we just what if we just say it's true, yeah. then what? my conclusion is is okay well maybe for portions of of your your training training throughout the year mm-hmm. you should probably be doing some polarized training yeah and i think the real the real reason why it's probably beneficial is that when you're spending a lot of time in zone one and zone two you're gaining adaptations like increased capillarization increased mitochondrial volume density but you're mm-hmm. not accumulating massive amounts of fatigue Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're doing a lot of your training in that, like no man's land of zone two to zone three, mm-hmm. 
there's a it's a it's a very very sharp knife edge of am i accumulating too much fatigue for my response or it's like like you're you're really just you're you're playing with fire a little bit more when you're doing a lot of like the the threshold training on a mm -hmm. very consistent basis mm -hmm. yeah yeah no i totally agree i think there's a there there's a lot to take into consideration that we're going to put forth for for individuals here in this episode of, of factors to take into account that are outside of the polarized versus threshold training kind of discussion. Because we know from several other pieces of research that really what we're talking about when we're talking about polarized versus threshold, we're talking about training response. And, and because regardless of what you're doing in, in training, individual response is going to be varied regardless of what stimulus you choose. So understanding, okay, what is the mean average of response to polarized versus pyramidal and understanding the limitations and what factors might play for certain people responding differently, depending on the modality, I think is, is yeah. where this discussion really enhances the, the practicality of, of, of training distribution. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, I want to be very clear is like, there's definitely a place for both of these within your, your training year in your training yeah. calendar for yeah. most people. So, yeah. so we're, we're not making the argument that you should do one over the other with, with pretty much everything we talk about, right. Is it's more mm -hmm. nuanced than just like, well, is polarized training the best or is threshold training the best? Yeah. There's certainly different benefits to each. So with that, I guess we can start to jump into like what the actual, some of the studies and all of those sort of say. So the first one I think we should talk about is from Stogel and Spurlick from 2014 frontiers in physiology because yeah, yeah. that this one i think was was pretty good and they looked at the the impact of polarized versus threshold training on key endurance variables like threshold vo2 all of that sort of stuff so what they did is they took 48 runners cyclists triathletes cross-country skiers and randomly assign them to one of four groups over nine weeks. These four groups, so they had A is high volume training, B was threshold, C was polarized, and then D, the training program for the first block was high intensity interval training, and then they had kind of like recovery weeks. So I guess that's their four groups is just like- a Polarized hit threshold and high. Yeah, gosh, their high, high intensity training sounds terrible. <laughs> it's like three days in a row of high intensity yeah. interval training and then rest. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they wanted to see what the best, what the best training program was over nine weeks for all of these adaptations that they were looking at and what they found. So they, they were interested in looking at, or they did a VO2 peak or VO2 max test. And then they were also looking at work, work economy. So what they found was that polarized training hit training both increased vo2 vo2 peak liters per kilogram per minute goodness gracious <laughs> it's like a, it's like i just took like a week a week camping trip can't read tables anymore or anything like that yeah so the polarized and hit group both increased their vo2 peak and then interestingly the threshold training decreased vo2 peak by like 4.1 percent it's pretty variable so i wouldn't i wouldn't really say that it actually decreased it because the stats whatever stats they did don't indicate mm -hmm. that it's a significant difference but i mean three points of relative vo2 going down mm -hmm. is certainly something to be aware of heart rate max 
or heart rate peak didn't change, which we would definitely expect over the course of nine weeks, unless they're like severely overtrained, we would not expect heart rate peak to change, which is again, one of the reasons why people use heart rate, like heart rate peak. And then zoning out of that is because your heart rate peak should not change unless you're again, severely overtrained, kind of like what we've talked about before. And then lactate peak also did not change. So from a maximal perspective, polarized training and hit training were sufficient to increase VO2 max in polarized training increased VO2 max by like seven points, which is quite a bit. It's like 11.7% over the course of nine weeks, which is crazy. Then they wanted to look at differences in this like submaximal. So they call it work economy, but it's submaximal VO2 heart rate. I don't see any lactate values. And mm-hmm. essentially what they're finding is that hit training reduced submaximal heart rate as well as threshold training reduced submaximal heart rate as well with no changes in the polarized group or the high volume training group. And then there were no other changes in like say VO2. So it, again, this sort of thing makes sense to me is that if you're exercising at a certain intensity, you're going to elicit a certain amount of oxygen demand, but you know, with certain training adaptations, your heart will get stronger. So you have to be less per minute in order to maintain that oxygen delivery and consumption. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to take a quick moment here to introduce you to a new sponsor of the show, which is Moxie Monitor. Now, I'm sure you've heard Phil and I discuss Moxie Monitor or nearest devices on the podcast before, or perhaps maybe a guest that I've had on the show um, speak on Moxie or nearest devices. Now, what MOXIE is, it's essentially detecting oxygen saturation at the level of the tissue that it's placed over, which can be extremely useful for sports performance, training intervention, understanding different profiles in athletes, desaturation slopes, um, resaturation kinetics, also you know connections to ventilatory thresholds or lactate thresholds, um, you know day-to-day readiness. There is no shortage of use for near-infrared spectroscopy like MOXIE. So if you guys want to get a 5% discount on a device, I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. Uh, It's OXPO in the promo code box, um, and you'll get a 5% discount. So just want to say thanks to MOXIE, and this has been one of the most reliable devices I've used in my practice with myself and athletes. So Shout out to Moxie. Yeah, I think some of these things too is I would really like to this. I think this is a great study. I think that like the the whole concept surrounding the study was great. Obviously, you can't do this forever, but Mm -hmm. I wish they could get a solid three months of this training. Like it would be amazing. Like this, I think this is a great study designed to see like how much stimulus is each one of these distributions placing on VO2P lactate and heart rate i would like to see what does three months of this do because i think there's this thing compounding effect and i think for example like things like hit training i try to explain to people like you know the adaptations gained from hit training in the first month versus something like high volume low intensity training they're going to be massively in the favor for hit training mm-hmm. but if we go three months down the line six months down the line does that still hold true 
Right. And I think three months would be adequate because we're in this middle zone where it's like, yeah, it'd be a, a really long block of training to do. Most people aren't going to do a 12 week block. Right. But it's also past that threshold of like four weeks, six weeks, 10 weeks. Yeah. Where we're really going to start to see like, okay, what are some of these more chronic type of adaptations mm -hmm. um, rather than the acute ones? Yeah. So it would be amazing. And I mean, that's why if you, I'm, 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 I'm wishing that we had this kind of like maybe some type of a exercise physiology union where, you know, so many athletes had to be inducted and, and, and essentially it's almost like jury duty. Like yeah. if it's per year, <laughs> you, you, like you have to be signed up to like give your training away for science for the better yeah. good of all sports. Yeah. Yeah. And you could just be like inducted to these like six month studies. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's like kind of the problem in the United or the, not the problem, but the challenge in the United States with doing studies like this. And I mean, so they're from, they're from Austria and Germany. But it's so hard for us to find people who have the time to do it, people who are willing to actually do a lot of these studies, especially like as soon as you add in like muscle biopsies and other things that are a little bit more invasive, yeah. it really deters a lot of people from actually participating. Whereas like yeah. over in Austria, Sweden, Switzerland, Finland, there's a, a much greater appreciation for like developing the research for the betterment of sport and science. So if you ever read like the, the research out of like, say Denmark, they're like, yeah, we had 35 untrained individuals all with VO2, all with like relative VO2 maxes of like 45. Yeah. I'm just like, dude, that's like our highest trained person that like even comes <laughs> in and gets tested. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're so willing to do it. And they're like, yeah, we did like 27 muscle biopsies and everyone was totally okay with it. And like all this yeah. other stuff. And like, oh, massive uh, training studies. Like I've seen some of like Ronstad's and, and Siler studies. It's like 67 cyclists, like elite cyclists of like, like what? Like, how did you, how, how is this possible? But it's yeah. a different culture, right? Like it's mm -hmm. the, the cultural thing is, is a huge factor yeah. to, to play in that. Yeah. But, it, but oh, yeah, yeah to, to double down on what you were saying, like, I think it's really important to do studies with a little bit longer, like studying the chronic adaptations to things, yeah. because again, HIT is such a potent stimulus that you're going to see, like, I, I'm trying to publish a study right now where it's like, we did two weeks of high intensity interval training mm -hmm. and we're already seeing like massive upregulation in markers of mitochondrial biogenesis, mitochondrial mm -hmm. turnover, mitochondrial remodeling, all of this sort of stuff. And that's in two weeks of training. Yeah. Whereas if you probably had somebody just like walk on a treadmill in like zone one, zone two, you probably wouldn't mm -hmm. see hardly anything. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So let's, so just in summary here, and then we can move on. So what they, what they found was that the polarized training demonstrated the greatest increases in VO2 max. So that 11.7% change, and then their time to exhaustion during the ramp protocol was 17.4% or was increased by 17.4%, which is higher than any of the other training modalities. But so it's like, okay, that's a ramp protocol. So it's not actually like a, an endurance performance outcome, but evidence to suggest that you know, perhaps this polarized training, there's something there, right? You see an increase in VO2 peak and then subsequent increase in the, in the time to exhaustion on the ramp protocol, which I guess those two do go hand in hand. Yeah. So so this is, this is, you know, in my mind's eye, like initial evidence 
of this kind of like polarized training being important for improvements in key variables for endurance performance, especially in well-trained athletes. So yeah, so then, yeah, so I had, study. I was going to say, I have another study that's like quantifying training intensity distribution in elite endurance athletes. Mm -hmm. um, is there evidence for optimal distribution? So if we want to take just a little bit of a detour and just like rewind in time a little bit, just to talk about the history or the notice that this like 80-20 rule extends to endurance activity. So what this, very briefly, what this study by Seiler and Kajurland, oh man, I hope I didn't butcher that too bad. From 2004, what they did is they took like, they took a ton of training sessions, but they looked at well-trained junior cross-country skiers and then they compared results of three different training intensity methods of training intensity quantification. And they wanted to just see what the distribution of their training was, because obviously people had been noticing, oh, these elite level runners, elite level cyclists, all this sort of stuff has started to do this like polarized training. And the big takeaway is that they also noticed that most of the training, regardless of if you quantified it by RPE heart rate, or what's the, what's the other one? RPE heart rate or blood lactate, there we go, was distributed in a polarized pattern with most sessions performed below VT1. So mm -hmm. about 75% of their distribution below VT1, and then a substantial amount above VT2. So 15 to 20% VT2. So again, this is, they, they conclude this pattern or the pattern quantified here is similar to the reported those reported in observational studies of elite endurance athletes across several sports. And it appears that elite endurance athletes train surprisingly little at lactate threshold intensity. So that is just more fuel for the, this fire of like, Oh, polarized training versus threshold training. And I think it's, I think we can now go into, well, this is an, this is an elite level athletes. Mm -hmm. This is in people who have a lot of time to be able to devote to their training. Mm -hmm. So with that, is polarized training really something that all endurance athletes should be striving for? Yeah, the whole 80-20 rule, really, like, this is what I start to explain to people is like, 80-20 at seven hours a week is way different than 80-20 at 30 hours a week. Yes. Or a hundred um, so, or a hundred miles, right? Yeah. So like trying to help people understand like time distribution, what is your marker for distribution? Is it heart rate? Also, what is the total time of training volume? What is the sport? And that's the thing when we're talking about cross country versus running, there's another study in here, 60 well-trained runners divided into four groups, like Running and cross country, even though they're they're very similar in terms of cardiovascular stress and some of these things, mm -hmm. the impact difference from high intensity running versus high intensity cross country skiing, those are gonna play two different factors in recovery. Yeah. Um or like even cycling, damage. right? Like yeah, yeah, or cycling too, right? Yeah. And this the is this damage. is what you were talking about with Jason, Jason Coop, right? Is that mm -hmm. um when you when you start to run a lot the amount of eccentric damage especially going downhill mm -hmm. is going to result like 
in a lot of damage that requires mm-hmm. a lot more recovery as opposed to like cycling, which is almost a purely concentric movement is mm-hmm. like, you could probably get away with more intensity more often. Yeah. yeah. So I've seen that to be the case too. Like running, like for anyone out there, go sprint cycle versus go sprint on the track. Mm-hmm. Um, do do 200 meter repeats or 400 meter repeats on the track and go do that on a, on a bike and, and correlate the time, right? Or just slightly, even give slightly more to cycling. doesn't really mm-hmm. matter. There's two different things going on the next day, mm-hmm. two massively different things going on the next day. Like I do, for example, like recently, I've been doing VO2 max work on the skier and not so much on the rowing because I'm, I'm still with the Achilles and whatnot, but I wake up the next day feeling fresh as a bird. Yeah, I didn't even like yeah, uh, you're like, I'm not even good. sore or anything like exactly. that. Yeah. yeah, I go do VO2 max work on the road or, or on the track. I wake up the next day completely smashed. Yeah, like my nervous system is fried for a good three days. Mm-hmm. So for people to say like, hey, polarized and pyramidal for all modalities is like, first of all, we know this from research. The muscle fiber response is different. Mm-hmm. Bar none, depending on what if you have 75% fast twitch versus 75% slow twitch, your response to endurance or, or polarized versus pyramidals, two different things, mm-hmm. two different things, your training history, how, how much time have you spent in the gym, right? Yeah. You're you, like, if you've spent seven years, eight years in the gym, built a fairly substantial amount of tissue tolerance, polarized versus pyramidal is going to be a different thing. If you're mm-hmm. a runner versus the next person that has never spent a day in the gym, right? Genetics. We know this. We know with genetics, specific type of training interventions are are responding differently in the individuals depending on specific genetic SNPs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually to add to that, so there's this like quote unquote conundrum within the like high intensity or just like exercise intensity research realm for like obesity, diabetes, those sort of things where you see responders non-responders and moderate level responders for pretty much any intervention that you have. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, that kind of highlights is like all of uh, like all of the, the research studies, what we try to do is get a big enough population that we think would be representative of the, the true population. And then we, and then we use stats and other things to try to say, most likely this is the outcome that you could expect by doing x y or z but that doesn't mean that you actually fit within that actual quantification right as an athlete so i know for me like i can do like exactly like what you were saying like we've done we've done a few hard running workouts lately and i'm definitely like i definitely feel more like fatigue and soreness after those as opposed Mm -hmm. to like a cycling workout where I only feel it when I actually get back on the bike the next day. And I'm just like, oh, Mm -hmm. like my legs are actually tired because I can't push like the same amount of power output. So it's a different type of fatigue that I'm actually feeling. But yeah. Yeah. And and let's even talk about this for a second. One thing I'm I'm spending a lot of my time researching is is cardiovascular and cardiomorphology adaptations to various modalities of of exercise and sport. Mm -hmm. There is massive genetic factors to this. You know, if you're an African-American, not only just African-American, like we're talking about specific subregions of Africa. These, like if you, we split Africa up into like four different regions. Mm-hmm. 
all these different regions are going to show different adaptations to the heart, right? Regardless of exercise, massively different, whether that's electrophysiological adaptations with T wave inversions, whether that's internal diameter of the left ventricle, whether that's left ventricle thickness, mm -hmm. all these different regions are going to show slightly different adaptations. And we know that some athletes can spend basically doing the same training on the same team can spend the same amount of time, 15 years. They have a, a heart that is barely discernible between an average individual. And this other person has these freakishly outlandish, massive walls, massive mm -hmm. ability on the right ventricle adaptations as well, like within a few years of, of the exercise intervention. So yeah. like, I think people really have to understand like what are the specific adaptations that you're chasing, right? Are you mm -hmm. chasing cardiovascular adaptations? Your genetics, all these things are going to play a huge factor. If you come in here with a, a ventricle that's 16 mils in thickness and 65 mils in diameter, polarized training is going to be different for you mm -hmm. than the next guy on the scale of average. It's like, well, what are you actually trying to chase here? Is right. it mitochondrial adaptations? Is it cardiovascular? And then, yeah. and then at the end of the day, is it, it's like, since there's so much variability in the true, like physiological response, like, is it better just to be like, well, let's just target performance outcomes mm -hmm. because, because it's like, yeah. it's like, unless you have all that technology available to you, it's really hard to know. Are you like, are you the type of person where you have like crazy cardiovascular morphology response, or yeah. are you more like mitochondrial response are you fast yeah. switch are you slow twitch yeah. like all that sort of stuff so yeah. it all comes back to and i think this is like something that i that i try to remind myself of is like is your performance getting better mm -hmm. by doing say polarized training threshold training whatever it is if you are having like the the stock market effect where it's like you have that trend of going up and up and up in your performance mm -hmm. then you're probably doing something that is adequately eliciting stress in yeah. order for you to get better yeah. so tweak that very slowly as opposed to just being like well i i was i was getting better doing polarized training but then i heard that threshold training could do x y and z for me so i just totally switched to threshold training yeah. it's like no 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 you already know that polarized training is working for you yeah or th vice versa so so again, this kind of comes back to the nuances of like figuring out what training distributions, volumes, intensities, all that sort of stuff works best for you as the yeah. individual or the coach figuring out what works best for a certain individual as well. I do want to say though, so there was another research article that I found in the Journal of Sports Science and Medicine that was conducted by a group out of Spain called Polarized and Pyramidal Training Intensity Distribution and the Relationship with Half Ironman Distance Triathlon Competition. And what they did is they pretty much broke up 18 recreational level triathletes into two training groups, one of them where they did polarized, one of them, one of them where they did pyramidal training. And what they found is that, and this is correlation, not causation, but they found a strong correlation between time in zone two, so that threshold training yeah. and their performance outcomes. So basically the more zone two training you did, the better your half Ironman outcome was. Mm -hmm. uh, granted, these guys, or I don't know if it's all guys, but these, the, these individuals were doing like 80% 
of their training in zone one, 20% in zone two, and then 3% in zone three. So like they weren't doing one of those studies where it was like 46 and 54. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But there is something to say for specificity of adaptation. It's like, yeah. if you're going to be doing something like a half Ironman, a marathon, like something that's within that, like one to four Five plus hours. hours yeah. yeah, exactly. Time domain. Then you probably should do some zone two training because that's what you're going to be racing at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, that heavy, heavy domain is like, don't, don't be one of those people to, oh, I'm going to do some heavy domain work like three weeks before my race. And that's about it. And it's like, those adaptations take a long time to show up. Uh, it's not just like overnight. And that's the other thing about studies too, is like, you know, what the studies aren't parsing out is like how long some of these adaptations truly take to, to gain to a high degree. If you, yeah, like Phil said, if you're going to be racing at some of those intensities or around those intensities, your distribution is going to, to matter quite, quite importantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things too, is, is another thing that Phil mentioned there is like, if you're changing something, you should be changing something because of stagnation or there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Like in terms of performance, do whatever you want. Obviously it's great to experiment, but you know, I think if you're improving, try and make as little changes as possible so you can isolate a lot of the variables. If you're making big changes all at once, you're doing yourself a disservice in understanding what was your response to mm -hmm. any given stimulus. So if you can try and change your, whether it's training di distributions or training intensities, whatever it is, a little bit slower. Um, to see how that affects your performance gains. And the other thing is you should be testing your performance regularly. You need to do something that is some metric of, of performance fairly regularly. And whether that's just doing like, say like an FTP test, like in the off season or something every six weeks, mm -hmm. uh, or like V like, or using like say VO two max intervals as your like marker of performance, performance mm -hmm. or your long run as a marker of performance, right? Uh, if you have something that is repeatable over time you should be able to modulate your your intensities and other things like that but you have to be measuring you have to have some level of of measurement of performance in order to be able to optimize your training at least yeah yeah because it is like loading an athlete with a, a massive amount of eccentric work work in the weight room vo2 max at the beginning of the season is that a bad thing they come out with a super high level of fitness, super high tissue tolerance. Now they can absorb a massive amount of base volume or aerobic volume, which you mm -hmm. would be wanting them to do, right? Let's just say if you, if you follow the classical model, would that not make more sense? Yeah. Right. No, now I, you yeah. come out with a massive amount of fitness, your VO2, like your ability to recover is like really tightly correlated to your VO2 max, mm -hmm. right? And your ability to handle eccentric stress is like really tightly correlated for your muscles to recover because the amount of stress that you place on them is less because they're less able to tear. Right. Does that make sense? Well, it doesn't follow the class. Yeah. 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 You start throwing these things at people and you're like, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> what they say. There's like yeah. roll their eyes and they're just like, I hear you. Yeah. I'm not going to listen to you. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So just really what we're talking about, we're talking about polarized versus a pyramidal or threshold. Um, just being having some basis like 
I'm not even John Kylie would probably have a really, I'd really like to ask him what are his thoughts on this whole conversation. Cause he was the kind of guy, the guy that like really deconstructed like classical periodization and block periodization as mm -hmm. this, like, what are we talking about here, folks? Right. The amount of literature on this to be saying that athletes should be doing this versus that, um, versus taking an independent approach and changing as new information comes in. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. And right. we have to look at these things like, so when I'm looking at polarized versus pyramidal or threshold, I'm looking at a mean value score. It's somewhere to start with an athlete of being like, Hey, this types of stimulus versus these types of stimulus, mm -hmm. right? This specific set versus this specific set. And this is a place to understand an overall type of theory, mm -hmm. not this very like 80, 20, like if you're counting out your athletes, hours and training time and heart rate at 80 20 i just don't think that's doing the best due diligence yeah it's a, it's mm -hmm. a good safe place to sit and say like hey yeah we know that it's a good place to start but you yeah. should be constantly tweaking being like okay i'm doing four weeks of this i'm seeing i respond now i'm going to change one specific variable yeah yeah whatever but I, I think to summarize that is like the research is a good place to get ideas of theory and then the practice is where you need to individualize yes. the training for yeah. every single individual. Like if you want to be the best coach possible, if you want to be the best athlete possible, then you yeah. have to be willing to take that theory and deviate from that theory based on what variables and what variables are changing and what respond yeah. better and, and all of that. And that's, that's actually, that's science within itself, right? It's like, mm -hmm. if we, if we saw in the, in the research that like, oh, this type of training is not working for most people, we wouldn't, we wouldn't just be like, well, since one study four years ago, yeah. 40 years ago said this works, yes. keep doing it. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, <clears throat> but that also requires due diligence on your part of getting the variables in understanding what the stress loads are on whatever, whatever athlete you're coaching and mm -hmm. then modulating those stress loads in, in, in accordance. Right. So yeah, it's the art and science of coaching. It's, it's a challenge, mm -hmm. but, yeah. but yeah, so I, I don't know if that, that doesn't maybe necessarily answer the question of like polarized versus threshold training. Cause it's way more nuanced than, than I think a lot of people would like, yeah. but the bottom line is, is that in theory, there seems to be benefit of polarized training there can also be an argument made for threshold training depending on if you're doing longer events that require you to exercise closer to say like ftp or critical power or vt2 and there's probably a whole smattering of of beneficial effects for everything in between so yeah yeah the answer is there's no answer yes um, yeah uh, that's how it should be like uh, biology is super messy uh, if you're looking for clear really i think what we're trying to give you with this podcast is like you know, a, a larger lens of like, oh, what about this? What about mm -hmm. this? What about this? This is a variable. This is a variable. How does this affect what's yeah. seen in practice? What's seen in the research? Giving you a broader view because there's no answer for whether you're training a powerlifter, a crossfitter, a sprinter, marathoner, a cyclist, track cyclist, whatever it is. There's no answer. It's just about having like a, a, a larger view. It's mm -hmm. like literally all it is more tools, more perspectives. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the more, the better you can start to tweak everything to, to get the outcomes that you want. Yeah.
yeah, with that, I think that's a good place to stop. So Matt, you want to tell, tell them where, where they can find you? Yeah. So resilience HPC on Instagram, hit me up there. Also on YouTube, it's oxidative potential. That's where you can find the podcast and I'll post some videos here now and then on, on some interesting topics. You can find Phil at critical O2. Mm-hmm. Um, and also why don't you, why don't you tell them about your, your, your new uh, other channel? I think yeah. that'd be interesting. Yeah. 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 So, so I, if, for those of you that don't know, I have a degree in mechanical engineering and I really just love building stuff. Mm-hmm. So one of the projects that I've taken on lately is I have a, a Toyota Tacoma and I always loved like the, like the go fast campers, pop-up campers, overland campers sort of style. However, I don't have the money to make my own or, or to buy my own. Mm-hmm. So I set out to build my own. And I also don't have welding skills or sewing skills. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make a no weld, no sew, bolt together camper. So I've I've converted that kind of into a, a design, camper design business called Kit Campers. So you can find that on Instagram. And then on top of that, if if you're someone who's interested in actually building their own camper, I just released like, like last night, a an interactive real-time classroom build guide, assembly guide that basically gives you everything you would need to build your own truck camper canopy. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy to work with people. It's like, oh, if you want to do van life stuff, if you want to do like a, a bit more of a serious build, I, I'm happy to, to work with you. So you can find me on Instagram at, it's just kit.campers. I have a YouTube video with a walkthrough of the camper, all of that. And I think it would be interesting because there's a lot of like ultra runners and stuff who want to kind of go and see the country and all of that. So you could potentially build one of these campers, then live out of one of these things. So if you, yeah. if that's interesting to you at all, go ahead and give me a follow. And if you have any questions, shoot me a DM on that. Um, you can also shoot me a DM on critical O2. Hey, I can't find this Instagram account. Let me know. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's a side project that I've been doing, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I hope you guys check that out. If you got a love for the outdoors, that stuff is 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 massively, massively valuable. So hope you guys enjoyed the episode and we'll catch you later. Later, guys.